Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello! Lads on tour 2018. I think lads on tour is stretching it a bit, actually. Well, here uh, we are. It's festival my, season. Myself. We did uh, Latitude the other week. Here we are at Luna Festival. Jeff considers himself still a lad, you see. Um, he <laughs> thinks he's a borderline millennial because he's 45. Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> I mean, the point being, I was born in the 70s. You were a child of the swinging 60s. I was. I was born in 1969. A, a baby boomer. So this is a constant back and forth we have between ourselves so the podcast is about positive ideas that can make the country better today we are incredibly privileged and i'm going to introduce her in a few minutes uh to have a a woman called hillary cottam who's written a book called radical help how we can remake the relationships between us and revolutionize the welfare state and basically she works on how you make public services better but it's it's not the kind of thing you normally hear about just putting more money in it's about how you redesign those services to really help people and she actually does it in practice she's she's honestly completely brilliant i've known her for about 20 years and she's going to come be coming on in a minute and ed is evangelical about this evangelical book. you were walking along reading it earlier you're so engrossed that you were walking and reading at the same time a man with your relationship with inanimate objects shouldn't be walking and reading no i ate a falafel earlier which did, went okay compared to the bacon sandwich <laughs> and it had all this all the goop on top as well so it was really it was pretty treacherous for me. My reason to be cheerful is last night there was this event. It's not going to be repeated again in the 21st century. This blood moon, this uh, the longest lunar eclipse yeah, it was a disaster. of the century. Uh, I don't, we did you see, see some? Well, I, I, I didn't see it. I watched it on the Guardian live stream, but I couldn't <laughs> see it myself. Well, I, th- I thought, shall I watch it? Yeah. And then I thought, no, I'm going to go see Mamma Mia 2 instead. Right. Oh, it was magnificent. Right. Has anyone seen it? I mean, that is a, a victory of cinematography. I haven't seen Mamma Mia 1. <laughs> well, why don't we have a date night? You can come round. We could get pizza. Maybe. We could do Mamma well, Mia we'll Double Bill. We'll sing along together. Yeah, when it comes out on video. Right. Yeah, but it's, it's, uh, it's very... There was one woman uh, just down the row from me. Down who, the road. Row. Oh, row in the row. cinema. Right. Who, every time Piers Brosnan started to sing, burst out laughing. And that, that didn't help with sort of being in the moment did, of did the you, film. Did you tell her off? No, I'm too shy to shush. No, no, you are. Jeff yeah. is... Uh, my problem is inanimate objects, and Jeff's problem is animate objects, i.e. people. Yes, uh, this is true. And so this is the sort of contrast yeah. between us. So, um, so Mamma Mia 2 rather so, than the eclipses. So is I have a new superhero for you all. And it's not Superman, but he's not new. And it's not Spider-Man or Spider-Woman. Um, it's Super Sewer. Yes, Super Sewer. And I got this from my children. Basically... Um, it's not a bird, it's not a plane, it's a flowing river of poo. <laughs> now, the, re- the reason I say this is apparently there is a fantastic programme on BBC Two, and I know you're looking sceptical, called Super Sewer. And if you want hours of entertainment for your children, my in-laws suggested it, and my children are loving it. 
It's about the construction of a new sewer. Everybody's looking like I'm. It's does, like bad um, parenting. <laughs> does does a constant stream of shit remind you of when you were leader of the opposition? Is yeah, that look. what it is? That's, yeah. that's appealing. I mean, I actually haven't been watching it to just to confess, right, right. but I'm told it's very good. It's triggering it's, for it's you. It's wholesome entertainment for the younger generation. Okay. Yeah. So I think we've set the bar quite quite low, low very low. Well, I wanted enough. to do a reason to be cheerful about the new domestic violence law in New Zealand, but Jeff said it was too much of a downer. Uh, a, festif- so, a festival. So, okay. I mean, it's a good thing. But okay, but that is my yeah. serious one, which is, and I think this deserves a big shout-out, so I'm getting to do it anyway, which is they've brought in uh, leave for people who face domestic violence, t- up to 10 days leave in New Zealand. It's a path-breaking law... Uh, across the country, so people can take time off work uh, as they are dealing with the consequences. So I think that deserves a big round of applause from this audience. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, please welcome Hilary Cottam. feel like a gooseberry, I can say no, that. No, 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 no. kind of whole bromance <laughs> Honest, thing. Honestly. Hi to all the women in the audience. <laughs> uh, Hilary, you, you've written this book, which I think is brilliant. Thank um, you. Tell us a bit, and, and maybe the best way of talking about this book is what you've actually done on the ground to change the way public services work. So say something about one of the examples, which can perhaps start to get into the conversation with the folk here about what your idea is. Okay. So um, I'm a social activist. I've worked in communities around the world for many decades, uh, the last few here in the UK. And I think that there is a big challenge that as fantastic as our welfare state is, it isn't necessarily fit for purpose. And I think there's a particular problem that often those people with the kind of greatest and most complex needs fall through the gaps. And so maybe the story I can start with is um, about 10 years ago, I was asked by a local authority, Swindon actually, by the amazing leaders in Swindon. And they said to me, look, we've got families. We know who they are. We have tried everything to support these families, but we can't really change their lives. We keep seeing the same people coming back again and again. And could you do something to help? And I didn't know, but I said, you know, can you introduce me to one of the families? And that's how I met this mother called Ella. And, um, and so I met Ella, and at the time I met Ella, she had uh, 73 different professionals involved in her and her family's life. 73? 73, right. from 24 departments. Right. Fantastic people, all trying to genuinely support Help Ella. Help her and her family. Help her and her family. But actually, the kind of net result was, of course, causing even more stress to Ella, because if you have 73 people knocking on your door... Um, So what I did with the kind of small team I worked with is we rented a house on the estate where Ella lives and we moved in. And we just spent time there, really. Spent time with Ella and other families. We were there. There's something actually on fire. I think it's dry ice. Dry ice. (laughs) Just (laughs) part of the festival atmosphere. Okay, sorry. It's what? Uh, It's a smoke. Yeah, 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 dry ice. I always (laughs) demand dry ice. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Wherever I go. We should try it in the House of Commons, actually. Uh, yeah. So uh, we were there, actually, when people's houses were set on yeah, fire. You know, we yeah. were there looking for kids yeah. after dark. We were on the sofa when the social worker comes to call, when the police come, the neighbours complain and so on. Just kind of really trying to understand what it's like from the family. And you decided to change the way everything worked. Yeah, basically what we thought was, what 
you know, everybody's had a good go. Let's ask all the people around Ella to step back and let's have a kind of pause in this system and say to Ella and her family, how could you make change? What do you actually want? And what support could we put back around you to make that happen? And, and that's the story, really. That's what we did. And what did, that, what did that mean in practice? So you had 73 different people coming in, looking at her, to, trying to help her, supposedly, 24 different departments. What did the other thing look like? Okay, so, I mean, you'll be very pleased to know what it doesn't look like is the big society. What we're not saying is, look, everybody can just step back, nobody yeah. needs support. What we said was, what support do you need? Why don't you choose a team that can then help you? And so, this is really interesting because Ella is given the chance to interview the people yeah. who are going to help her. So this yes. is like no other social work or you know, intervention that you've ever seen. It's actually saying to the person who's supposedly being helped, you choose the people. Yeah, That's what we say. But I think another really important part of this is what we're also saying, because we're spending time with the frontline workers, is, look, you're a social worker, you're a nurse, you're a police officer, you are an amazing person, and you came into this profession to help people, but actually you're spending 80% of your time filling out forms and dealing with the bureaucracy. So what about if we support a different team where you don't spend 80% of your time on bureaucracy, managing the list, the risk assessment, whatever. Yeah. You spend your time supporting Ella and her family. So we asked anybody who wanted to work in that new way to step up and be interviewed. And then we put a team together. So same people, existing social workers, but with a different framework around them so that they could then work in a different way. And did it work? It did work. It worked. What was the effect? Um, so, well, we've worked kind of with Ella and her family, with many other families. We've worked at four other locations around Britain. I mean, the effect really was that Ella found space to find a pause in her life. She had decent support. And gradually, she was able to sort out her own problems, her debt, the fact her children have been excluded from school. She's in work. Her children are in school. Able to resume a kind of normal, everyday life and, and to flourish, basically. And we should go on to other examples, but your key insight in this is what? I mean, in other words, take that story and say what is your... Because this isn't just a series of stories compelling as they are. This is You've got a sort of theory about the way public services need to change, yeah? Yeah, so I think um, the current challenge is that our services are all designed around managing risk. They're highly transactional. It's like pass the parcel, manage your risk, manage your needs, basically manage you. And what I think needs to happen is that we all need to be given the support we need to actually grow and flourish in this century. And we need to develop our own capability, which doesn't mean let's leave you on your own, but it means freeing up the kind of fantastic professionals we have to support people to actually enable them to kind of grow and develop. And ultimately, it's about relationships between people. Because the example you asked me about, Ella, same families, same professionals, but with a different relationship between them, powerful change happens. And you've done it with the elderly? You've yep. done it with young people, yep. you've done it with people with long-term health conditions, yes. Yes. and you've done it with people looking for work. Yes. So, I mean, the book tells a story of, of experiments, I call them, because, you know, we're trying new things with over 10,000 people and, in the, you know, with radical change in people's lives. And what's the reaction of the bureaucracy when you do these things? Uh, I mean, the bureaucracy is <laughs> the wrong way of putting <laughs> yes. it. What's the re- your reaction of government, you know, uh, sort of the, 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 the people on the front line... I mean, obviously, I couldn't do this work without the support of everybody. So initially, people might be quite sceptical, but I think everybody knows, really, that something needs to change. 
Um, but I generally find what something I write about in Radical Help is that you get a lot of support. I mean, many of you here might have experienced this. You can do something small and you get a lot of support, but once you begin to kind of challenge the system itself, the system does have a kind of habit of kicking back and trying to control you and put you back into its boxes and its measures and so on. And you talk a lot about elderly people in your book, don't you? And the way you know, loneliness is a massive problem and that, that you know, in a way we talk a lot about social care, the social care crisis underfunded, all of that, but you also look for different ways to link elderly people up to each other and to younger people as well. Yeah, I mean, one of the kind of arguments in the book is that the nature of our problems in this century has really changed and kind of growing older is a great example. It's fantastic we're growing older, but it's also definitely true that in the current system... uh, there isn't enough to go around within that system. We need to think differently. And also, it's a very good example of how we don't want to be managed. Nobody wants to be managed as an older person. We want to kind of grow and to flourish and to have the kind of relationships that make that happen. And have you had successful experiments in this area? Well, I mean, I think one interesting thing, not only kind of do people, we call it circle, who join circles really flourish, but the pressure on existing systems goes down. So in one place, for instance, there's less, uh, 25% less visits to GPs because people go because they're lonely and they need help. Of course, we want people to go to GPs for the right reason but not this is elderly people yes and how do you link the elderly people up so they don't need to go to the GP well so I guess it's a kind of you know it's like a a, it's a kind of social network it's a club it's it's um, gives you practical support What's really important is that there's a kind of curator of this because what you need is you need somebody that kind of meets people who perhaps are on their own at home, who feel vulnerable and encourages them to join. So there needs to be somebody there kind of making it happen. Otherwise, you know... So I'm an elderly person in your experiment. Yeah. And you talk about a guy called Stan in the book. Yes. What happens to Stan and how does, how does his life get changed? So, well, Stan is somebody who lives in the centre of London and is very alone. He doesn't speak to anybody. He has a son who lives in Canada who calls him, but he's very lonely. So what we do is we go meet Stan. We spend time with Stan. We encourage Stan to join in because, obviously, if you've been lonely a long time and some cheerful person turns up, you're not necessarily going to think, oh, yes, I must do this because you've been on your own for a while. So, again, it's about building relationships. It's really about finding out what people want. Stan wants to hear music that he loves. So we kind of encourage him to join a music group and that's the first step of getting Stan mobile again. Because it sounds so basic, doesn't it? It does. And is, is is it that our... I mean, we've had this welfare state and social care system for the best part of a century... Um, is, is it sort of sprawled over that time or is, that, is it just new thinking we haven't caught up other countries in the world which uh, uh, operate in the, more, more the way that you are operating well I've worked a lot in Africa and Latin America and obviously kind of I've learned a lot from community work in those uh, continents but I th- look, I think the thing is, is that people who are most interested in, in these subjects and kind of changing the welfare state are in the welfare state. So what they do is they try to fix the existing institutions. And even if you go out into a community, what you do is you say, well, I've got this service. Could you help me improve the service? What we don't do is say, look, how do people want to live in this century? Can I sit on your sofa and talk about what you need to make that happen and generally those are quite simple things so but is it so it's just turning it on its head really but is it ripping it up and starting again or is it is it building on what's already there oh, that's a really good question so i think that um 
I, I called the book Radical Help, but actually I think there's tons of this work everywhere. It's about giving it resource and oxygen. Um, I mean, probably many people here are doing kind of similar work. And I mean, one of the reasons I write about the original Welfare State is because when Beveridge designed the Welfare State after the Second World William War, Beveridge, William yeah. Beveridge, the kind of founder with the, you know, I've got yeah. the report in my bag, <laughs> take it everywhere. Yeah. Um, the thing is that what he did was that he created a new framework and then he folded existing things in so not everything was new but actually put into this new operating framework different things started to happen and that's what i think should happen now and i we met a long time ago um uh some of your ideas were sort of looked at by the concert by the coalition government and even by you and include and by me uh, but i sort of failed to act properly on them i, I confess <laughs> But, uh, uh, as Hillary said to me earlier, um, uh, uh, but, but, but still there, there is one interesting thing, isn't there, about uh, David Cameron, believe it or not, um, which, is, <laughs> which is he came to one of your, um, the, the Ella uh, example, yeah. um, and then tried to get government to do it, and it sort of went a bit wrong, did it? Uh, yes. Not because of him necessarily <laughs> on this occasion, but because of the sort of general, the, you know, the bureaucracy didn't quite get it. Is that right? Well, yes, because I think what happened was that he saw, uh, in fact, he came to meet with mothers and, and other yeah. people in families and was completely blown away by the yeah. change in their lives and said, we need to kind of make this possible for everybody in the country. But then what happened was that something that was kind of highly about relationships and, we, you know, we didn't have any outcome measures and we said, you know, to families, look, as long as it takes. I mean, it took about two years and with families working with really a whole month, you know, but it cost a lot less than it the... It cost a lot less. 47 or yeah, whatever. So not really, I mean, yeah. and people genuinely flourished yeah. and they were out of the system yeah. rather than revolving yeah. around. Yeah. But the thing was that once those ideas got put back into the kind of industrial pipeline of how something should be rolled out a, across yeah. the country with, you know, you must meet these measures, you must spend money in this way, it got transformed into something completely different. And, and I think that's definitely the challenge, which is, you know, how do we grow this, keeping it true and authentic to the relationships, but not kind of put it into the machine. Now, maybe we should go to the audience. Uh, this is your chance to talk to Hillary, ask her about public services. Maybe you work in a public service. Maybe you use a public service. Maybe you think it's great. Maybe you think it needs transforming. Uh, we've got a microphone that is hopefully uh, going to go round. Uh, yeah, there's somebody over there. In the flat uh, uh, We'll get you the microphone. It's just on its, coming on its way to you. What's your name? Thank you. I'm Patsy Sweeney. Hi, Patsy. Everything you said, Hilary, is absolutely makes complete sense. I think the diversity of the ideas you have are, are phenomenal. We can't boil the ocean, and there's so many things to change. We can't turn around a tankard. What would be the one thing that you think might start to make a change culturally? Good uh, question. And in the Good oh, question. question. Can I just ask you, do you work in... Are you a... No, I've come from business. Right, okay. I think that's a really... It's a brilliant question. So we've got this thing called the Jeffocracy, which is Jeff as a sort of... Not so benign ruler. Why do you keep saying not uh, so benign? I think uh, I'd be very benign. Well, anyway, we're b- benign-ish uh, ruler. I mean, that's partly the question. You know, what would you do to start turning things around? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, I don't think there's kind of one thing. There's a few things that I would do. Um, but one of the things is that I would give people much, much greater freedom to kind of come together 
And there's really good examples of this. So, for instance, in Leeds, can I give you an example of it? So, in Leeds, there's um, somebody who leads social work. He's been there for 20 years. He asked Leeds, um, some of you here might be from Leeds, to organise themselves into communities. You decide who you are. You could be two streets, ten streets, ten families, and Leeds organise itself. And some of the communities are big and some are small. And then over, over kind of decades, money has been given to those communities to take care of people within the community on a 10-year cycle. So you don't have to spend time applying for money. You don't have to worry if more money is coming. But what Who administers do, the money? Uh, well, it's just uh, you have to decide. So let's say we're, we here, the cheerful podcast for today, are the community. We'll right. run it ourselves. Okay. But you see, those questions aren't asked, really, right. in the sense that there is high trust. And, there's, and they've got the, the most incredible outcomes for their elderly population. Because it's just designed for the... Designed. No, well, no, but I mean, I'm just giving you yeah. an example. Because actually, those communities, the older people are active parts of them. And then it's not like, oh, this person needs a service. It's like woven into the everyday. So I think one of the really important things is to kind of shift resource to that level, to have confidence in people that they will organise, that they can be trusted. And we will take care of each other, actually, if... if if the right systems are in place. The way we often talk politicians about public services is public service delivery. And delivery is a model where it's like you're waiting for the thing to come through the letterbox and you have no role in it. You're just waiting for it to arrive. And in a way, what you're talking about is a much more sort of interactive way of doing it. Delivery is over. There's no more delivery. It's like, I am with you and what are we, we going to do? Because, you know, one of the things I say in the book is if you think about the really big problems of this century, ageing, migration, climate change, nobody's going to deliver the solution. We are going to have to work together to create those solutions and the sooner we start, the better really. And we know how to do it, actually. And we have what we need. Okay, let's uh, let's take some more hands. Yes, Uh, there's a lady in the front and then a gentleman in the fantastic shirt. Um, uh, I'm not asking for your shirt, just in case you thought. Uh, no, no harm to the shirt. Uh, yeah. Um, hello, my name's Louise. I'm um, an operational healthcare manager, so I, I manage an outpatient department. Oh, at, fantastic! Um, at Which one? Uh, it's the Lister in Hertfordshire. Right. Um, Big round I- of applause for doing that job. It was a really important job. So my life is, um, is very much ruled by proving to other people that the service I run is safe and effective. And there are multiple agencies that come in and judge us, um, and including patients. Um, and, and the purpose, I think, of some of those, of some of those measures is to, is to provide assurance to, to taxpayers, to the government, to NHS Improvement, um, and to other regulators that we're doing a good job. That it's safe, in other words, that it's safe that what you're doing. So it's sort of the minimum. So, so it's not you're cli- not cheating. No, it, it's not about clinical safety. Right. It, it's about the. It, it's about um, actually making people. It's managing the risk for the people who are more senior to me. So even our chief executive has someone that he answers to and everybody around me is spends a, a much greater proportion of their time than they should do making other people feel safe in terms of that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. And I have to spend a lot of, time, of my time proving to the people around me that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing 
And the times that I spend half a day with a patient who has got very complex needs and actually needs a navigator to help them figure out where they need to be, I then have got to go and do all my other work on top of that. And it's like that half a day that I spend, it isn't, it, that, isn't, that isn't considered to be valued, value-added time. I was time. about to say, so it's not valued by the no, institution. No, no, no. And it, it is on a certain level, but then I still have to go back and do the board report and do the blah-blah report and do the so other blah-blah blah report. So speak to you what Hillary is saying? No, absolutely. And I guess my question is, yeah. and my, my, sort of my challenge is, how do we, in the public se- sector, make everybody else feel safe that we're doing what we're supposed to be doing without key performance indicators and outcome measures? Really like, good how, question. How do we do that? Because if you've got something and we've got something now, we need to replace it with something else. And I don't know that anybody's really figured out what that something else okay. looks like. great question. Let's go to the stripy shirt. Uh, um... What's your name, sir? Joseph. Joseph. Hi there. Hi. Um, yeah, so I think part of the problem, or actually the question is, do you think part of the problem is that the public health care system is reactionary rather than proactive, and it's not empowered to be proactive in resolving these measures? So, for instance, you're getting involved at a stage that's already the issues have arisen, and do you think the system empowers you to react, to be proactive rather than just react to these issues? Really good. I mean, they're two really good questions from, I think, Louise and Joseph. So if I can start with Joseph's question, I mean, actually, there is a a chapter in the book about this, about health, for example, and and how to work differently with it. And I completely agree with you. And by this kind of shift I make in the work I do from meeting people's needs to creating capability, it's absolutely about that. Like, what can we grow so the problems don't set in? And we absolutely have to invert the current system so that the resource is placed there. And I think that's also part of, you know, what we do about this kind of... I mean, what I say in the book is that what we have is not a well welfare state we have a management state because 80 to 96 percent of every service i operate in you can see what you're talking about it's not just healthcare; it's everywhere it's education it's prisons you know you name and it and sorry to interrupt but i think you said ryan who is the social worker for the son yeah, of yeah. ella spends 72 percent of his time doing paperwork yeah? yes yes sorry. exactly yeah. absolutely 76 actually. 76 sorry yeah. <laughs> yeah absolutely but the thing is is that um that we what we have to do is we have to work in a different way. And if we put relationships in, when systems get really big and when they are kind of run on a value of money, not on relationships, this is what happens. We have to kind of begin to audit in this way, which takes more and more resource. And um, a lot of the, of the kind of examples in my book are about breaking down those units, aren't they? They're about kind of thinking about more of a honeycomb structure. You don't have to audit anybody if people can actually see what's going on. In the services we create, the kind of ageing circles, it's the the same as your question about who asks what happens to the money. We can see what's happening because it's kind of held by a community. I mean, it's such a, a long way away community. from where public services are. I mean, it's, it's miles away, though. Isn't well, it? it is and it is miles away from what the expectations of Louise's management are and her chief executive. Yes, and so I mean on. you're in a highly industrialized system, which is all about kind of collecting that. But I think what's really interesting is how. I mean, I think we could ask everybody here, and everybody would have a good and known example of what I am talking about. It's there, and then you know, as Jeff says, we could roll all of that into a new framework, and we could create something different. Okay, let's see if there are any other questions. Yes. Oh, now lots of questions. Hey, uh, my name's Phil. Um, I'm kind of interested in an area in Birmingham called Druid Teeth. It's, I think, number one most deprived super output area in the whole of Birmingham and 33rd in the United Kingdom. 
that's been ignored for a very long time and gets the tick box treatment. That you and what's it called, sorry? Druid's Heath. Yeah, Druid's Heath, yeah. Um, and it's kind of had this tick box treatment for a while. And now there's talk of a big service design using the very language that you're talking about. Um, I was just wondering how we would detect whether the service design that there is going to happen question. is a Trojan horse for privatisation and whether all the contracts are just going to go to um, Crapita, uh, yeah, who okay. have all the other Birmingham City Council now, contracts. Are they all going to go to Crapita? That, uh, that was the question. Yeah. Uh, and then the lady in the orange, Kagul. Hi. Hi. Can you hear me? Yes. yes. Yeah. What's your name? It's Jane. Um, I'm an occupational therapist. In um, I've spent 20 years in mental health services. So, um, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, I just like to acknowledge that we have um, a hugely talented, committed workforce totally. who want to see the changes. And um, I think that's really hard when it's not coming from above. And I think if it can come from above and there's government and um, commitment from those areas, then changes will happen. But we have been trying to work in um, things like co-production, peer support for years. And it sounds great for a couple of years. The money's there for a couple of years. And then it's just sort and of what's dwindles the big, away. Sorry to interrupt, Jane. What is the biggest barrier you face? Sounds like you sort of broadly speaking like what Hillary is saying, what's the biggest barrier you face to doing that? Is it paperwork? 80% of my time is paperwork. And I just have to say that I have seen probably tens and tens of very experienced, committed staff who are burnt out and say, I can't do this anymore. And they do go and stack shelves and they do go and do anything else, really, because they have no compassion left or empathy left and has it always been that way 80% paperwork because it just got worse no it's gradually got worse over the last I've been in healthcare for 25 years and it's just got worse and worse and we don't really see why we sometimes feel that the patients or clients or service users are actually forgotten and then we suddenly start to think that's actually why we're here Okay, thanks very much, Jane. And I think I saw a lady, yes, uh, at the back, if you can just pass the microphone and then we'll come back to Hillary and then we'll uh, move on. Uh, There we go. Hello, thank you. Hi. Um, I wanted to say... What's your name? My name's Rachel. Hi, Rachel. And we're in lovely rural Warwickshire. And um, one of the things I wanted to raise is the disparity between services in towns and cities and rural communities. If it's hard to get respite care, drug and rehabilitation support, any sort of service in a town or city, it is almost impossible if you live in a village. And I think until we sort of look at that disparity, um, you know, there is a massive inequality that that is not being addressed. Okay, great questions. Privatisation, paperwork and rural areas. And you've got like... 12 seconds, no. Okay. Uh, no. So, um, well, I'll start with rural areas, Rachel, because actually, I mean, a lot of the examples in the book, I mean, we do work in rural areas, and I think what, I mean, I think that disparity is really important. Uh, we have to kind of change the models sometimes to make them work well, where, you know, there's greater distance between people, but we can do it. Now, I think one of the really interesting things is that there has been, a, you know, I'm not the first person to talk about changing the system. This debate has been running yeah. for 20 years. And what we see is that kind of language is co-opted and the system runs on forever the same, which I think is the, is the question about, you know, capital or whatever. And I think um, what, we need, what we need, again, it's a question about kind of involving people in those decisions that 
we, the members of the public, know whether something has been given a new name or whether it's actually changed and the kind of yeah. nature of the relationship in there has changed. Yeah. And it's about asking people to get involved in those processes, really, and opening those processes up. And then, and then people can kind of tell the difference. I mean, I think in terms of the kind of 80% and people being burnt out, I, I mean, I don't know what to... I mean, again, I can only kind of agree in J- that... Jane, what would it have been uh, 20 years ago? If it was 80% now, what would it have been then? 25%, yeah, yeah. right. I mean, this is That's the kind of, worse. you know, privatisation. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's the, not just it's privatisation. Audit, I don't mean it's private auditing. corporations. I, yeah. mean, I mean the kind yeah. of mindset of sort of public sector management that has kind of developed. And the thing is, is that we have incredible professionals but they are burnt out and we have huge vacancies you know in the health service one in three positions vacant you know uh, one in five social workers not actually working because they can't work within existing and that's the crisis and there's no point in saying oh let's have more nurses let's have more doctors if we don't change the framework it's like pouring water into a bottomless bucket and that's why you know radical health really is a kind of argument for a different framework can I say one more thing which is that one of the kind of key things we haven't talked about but is in the book is that technology there are two things we have in abundance we have ourselves you know we're many people we're hugely talented and we have energy and we want to participate if systems are designed for our participation and the other thing is technology we're using technology to prop up out-of-date systems you know we tag prisoners we don't educate them we kind of put in more and more kind of forms to fill in but actually what we've shown in in everything we do is that we can use that same technology to take all of that out and leave us the space to kind of have the relationships with one another that make change. And let, just give yourself a chance to say, it's day one in the Jeffocracy. Jeff is sitting in Downing Street playing with Sky TV. Uh, he's become the supreme ruler, sorry. Uh, uh, I'm very be- hands-off. He's become the supreme ruler. What is the thing you do on day... You're in charge of public services... What's the thing you do on day one? Well, the first thing I do is I say, take care of everyone. Like, I stop this war between, like, users good and kind of professionals bad and say that for a system to flourish, we're going to take care of everyone in it. And then the next thing I do is I do invest in technology and the platforms that can ensure that we can then distribute resources. Because the internet could be a very powerful vehicle to do what you're saying in the book. Yes, I mean, all the different circles are ageing in different parts of the country. All the kind of system is just there on a kind of, you know, very, very simple technology platform so that you don't have to spend time doing it so that you can access what you need and so that all the time that you you know whether you're an organizer or a member or whatever is actually spent face-to-face supporting people to live differently and last question for me what do you want our audience and our listeners to do well, of course, what I'd most because like you to do... Because we can't have a thing which is all about, you know, the users being empowered and then have yeah. a, you know... So, the, so look, the, the reason I wrote the book is because I think we cannot make change in this country until we tell a different story of what could be. And we've got kind of locked into this thing of, like, privatise, invest more money in the old systems. And actually, we need something different for now. So, I mean, I know I, what I'd most like you to do is buy a book, buy two copies of the book, and have a conversation with somebody that you don't know who thinks differently to you about what could be in this country. Because we don't know each other anymore. And until we kind of start that national conversation, I genuinely believe that we can't make change. So for- that's what I'd like. But I also think that I'd love to hear from you if you've got examples of where you think that there is radical change that's working differently that I can learn from because I'm always learning and all of this still needs to grow. We're just in the foothills of what could be. Really. And you can email, email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com and tell us that would be uh, about the ways in which either you think public services need to change, can change, or the way you're changing them. That would be fantastic. Hilary Cotton, thank you so much. Big round thank of applause. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen. 
Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. And please welcome to the stage to pitch some ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful, Bethany Black. Oh. oh, thank you. I was a little bit too far away, and those steps, I've done that thing where I've gone, I'm, I'm, I'm thin enough to fit into those jeans now, and I'm not. Um, <laughs> right, I'm stuck here now. But you, didn't fall down, you didn't fall up the stairs or anything? I didn't fall up the stairs, I just had to yeah. do my little waddle. Have yeah. either of you ever fallen over yeah. on stage? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, oh, no, I, do you not remember? No. Oh, God. I thought you Sorry were just to trying to embarrass no, me. what happened? The question time stumble. No. Oh, Do you not remember yeah, in the yeah. 2015 election? Oh, it wasn't a full-on fall, though, no, was it? No, I know, but it was a meme. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, so you're not uh, allowed to forget and it. Actually, and actually, you know what? I've never said this ever before, but the, guy, but the person who was working with me on the blasted debate said to me, now be careful, because this bloody Q out of QT question time is really awkward, and you could fall off. I was like, don't be ridiculous, honestly. That's not going to happen. I did almost exactly the same thing last week. I was doing a TV show that's out later on this year. Really? And uh, I was, yeah, and they told me to go to the, they said, oh, be careful. If, when you walk off, you'll walk off from the front of the stage. That's absolutely fine. And because I'm on the autism spectrum, they went, well, show you around the studio, first of all, to make sure you don't accidentally stumble over anything. And that's so that you're all right and, and okay with your environment. I was like, great, that's fantastic. And they took me in and I managed to fall off the back of it. The exact opposite of I where they showed me. I feel better now. Yeah, yeah. So that, I you feel know. better. That's solidarity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Stumble solidarity. Absolutely. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely feel better. Uh, yeah. Stephanie, you brought along some ideas which could be potentially reasons to be cheerful. Yeah, I have. Uh, as I mentioned, I'm on the autism spectrum, so I'd quite like my house to be a Pokemon stop. That's my first... <laughs> our local pub is a Pokemon yeah, stop. it's great. They're, they're, there's a couple down our street, but they're a little bit too far from my house. Uh, I don't really leave the house, so it's much better. To do <laughs> well, did, despite... Uh, How do you get to, to be a Pokemon stop? So this is the Pokemon Go app? Pokemon Go app, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, so yeah. some Pokemons live in your house then? Well, no, they're all over the place, but you can, uh, uh, you got, you, you've got to go and like, spin Pokemon like, stops. And you know, you, yeah, you can spin a Pokemon stop and you get Pokeballs and you get berries and you get all sorts of stuff so that you can go out and catch more Pokemon. Which... So are you playing Pokemon or are your kids no, playing it? No, my kids are playing it and the pub is a local Pokemon so stop. And they seem kids to, are always down they the pub. They seem to go, go into the pub <laughs> like and David come out Cameron's. with a pint yeah. and it doesn't seem to... Uh, <laughs> so much better than when we were kids and just put in the back of a car with a window down a crack with, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> with a pint of Coke and a, or yeah. well, a little glass of Coke and a packet of crisps. Oh, those were the days. Yeah. When my dad was in the Morris dance, local Morris dancing... Your dad was a Morris uh, my dancer? My dad was a Morris wow. dancer, yeah. He was a blacksmith as well, my dad. He'd like proper... I didn't grow up in the yeah, 16th century. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it 
It sounds like time it, doesn't traveller. it? Yeah, yeah. yeah, time traveller. No, no, I, uh, no. My dad was a my dad was one uh, was a blacksmith at Leyland Motors in the seventies, and oh. um, and a Mo- Morris dancer as and well. And a Morris dancer as well. So most of my childhood was spent outside pubs watching my dad going and dancing around. Ma- Were maybe you traumatized you... by that. Well, not particularly because it was proper Northern Morris dancing with sticks rather right. than hankies. Right. So, maybe, you know, maybe you and I should take up Morris dancing together. Who, who would like to see uh, that? <laughs> I mean, I think we, you're we already need, part of the way there. Well, yeah, yeah. We, need, we need a sort of hobby. We need a sort of hobby to do together. I mean, I, I've suggested we do pantomime as, as a pantomime, no, 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 pantomime no, no, no. horse. <laughs> no, 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 or the ugly sisters. No, 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 no. definitely no. not. <laughs> definitely not the pantomime horse. Okay. Uh, what else have you got, Bethany? One of my other ones, which I think might be a little bit contentious for quite a lot of people, uh, ban men from being outside after 8 o'clock unless they're accompanied by women. <laughs> Ooh. You know why. Uh, <laughs> you know what you did. Um, a I curfew. Very, a, male, curfew a male, male cur- curfew. Yeah, unless accompanied by women. I get very self-conscious when I'm walking on the street and there's a woman in front of me and I'm worried that even though there's nothing, there's nothing to be afraid of, like I'm making her feel self-conscious, so I'll sometimes cross the street just so that she's not aware that I'm walking behind her. I want then I think, does that seem like weird behaviour? It does, yeah. I, I was once at a cash point around the corner from where I live in, where I used to live in Moss Side in Manchester, and I was really paranoid. Like, there's someone behind me. It was back, back when I still drank, and like, I was at a pub, and it was late. It was, uh, I'd gone to the cash point at about two in the morning, and somebody stood behind me, and I was panicked. And he went, Don't worry, I'm not going to rob you. <laughs> and just all that went through my head was that sounds very much like you are going to rob yeah, me yeah, 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 yeah. I'm so, going to run away so now. how would this work then I'm going to ask you the difficult policy question. difficult policy yeah. question you so, need to... so men not allowed out after 8pm yep, why 8pm well that's, that's it's an arbitrary right it's arbitrary, an arbitrary number it's of an evening yeah. because after 8pm people start drinking could be 9 the watershed anyway yeah yeah 9 o'clock nine. watershed yeah absolutely yeah, yeah 9 okay. o'clock thanks nine for that o'cll- 9 o'clock that'll be in the uh, yeah. that'll be in the, the manifesto the mail yeah. tomorrow, won't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so nine o'clock, and then what happens? And then they need to be accompanied by at least two women. At least two women? Yeah. At least two women to keep them calm. Right. See, this would work well for me because I don't like to leave the house either, and it would give me the perfect yeah, excuse to never go out. It's fantastic. But what if you want to go out with your female partner, wife? She has to bring a mum. She has to bring a friend. Yeah. Right. <laughs> It's obviously quite popular, this idea. Uh, I think <laughs> it's it gaining popularity on. with it's the gaining, men. I can see that. Ga- that yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That it's gaining popularity. But you're definitely two. Definitely two. I mean, one... Uh, I mean, yeah, I think you need at least... Uh, well, because one guy with one woman, then you, you can possibly end up in that situation where you end up with someone who's a little bit... Uh, how to put this delicately. Uh, like, you know those people, you know, who've like, got a joint Facebook account? Husband yeah, and wife, yeah, yeah. and you know that it's because one of them has gone and like cheated, and <laughs> and can't be trusted with Messenger on their own. And is that a thing? Joint that's a Facebook. thing. Yeah, joint yeah, yeah. Facebook accounts. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I, I, in fact, the the epitome of that. I was doing a gig a couple of weeks ago in Liverpool, and there was a joint stag and hen party out, and I was like, you really don't trust each other, do you? <laughs> Absolutely that terrible. Is true. Yeah. Right. So, so the the so it's definitely two. Definitely double two. marking. Definitely two, just to try and avoid any sort of like abuse situation. I yeah. think that's that's my... Two-step <laughs> verification. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. absolutely. Yeah, right. I think right. that's it. Yeah, we'll have that, I think. Okay, yeah, yeah definitely. All right, what, el- what else have you got? Um, I was trying to think, what else have I got? Did you have one about um, trains? 
Oh yeah, no drinking on trains. Um, I mean, I do you feel that I, I, I've not had a drink. I think when you don't drink anymore, I don't drink anymore. When, no, when I used to. How long ago did uh, you start? Twelve years. So I've, I'm, I'm I've been sober. a bit, bit longer than you, but yeah, so, so I've you, not drank for a long because time. You're older. So you've got uh, yeah, superiority. Right. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, but but so, um, it, I do think it seems like part of the British way. We were talking about it this morning on the way here. Like people drink at a time of day that they wouldn't normally drink. As soon as they're on a train, yeah. they think it's acceptable to have a bottle of yeah, wine at nine o'clock in train, the morning. It's a bit like an airport. Let's yes. get pissed. That's yeah, how it yeah, works, yeah. isn't it? It's um, one of my friends, a comedian called Barry Dodds, who does a podcast called The Parapod. If you've not heard it, he's brilliant. And he would regularly, in an attempt to try and make sure that he got four seats together, the four seats with the table, which is the holy grail of train travel, yes. would, he came up with a way to make sure that he always got that on his own with no one else sharing with him. By that is antisocial behaviour, by the that way. That is antisocial behaviour. Oh, there's behavior. lots yeah, of that goes yeah, yeah, yeah. on. Yeah. But his way of doing that was to go and buy four cans of Carlsberg Special Brew first thing in the morning <laughs> and just put them on the, on the table and leave in them e- there. In each seat. No, no, just four of them in front of him. Just sat there as if he was going to drink uh, all four of them himself. Yeah. Thinking, people thinking, I don't want to sit next people, to this man. I'm honestly, not sitting next honestly, to there's him. Yeah. M- I mean, the antisocial behaviour on trains. I don't get on public transport because uh, it's, it's really weird coming on after being talking about something so serious and then me coming on and being daft. But I don't use public transport because I've got PTSD. And, uh, yeah, I've, uh, autism spectrum, I've got ADHD, which I found out at the same time, which was, you know, I was like, oh, thank God for that. I thought I was just an arsehole. And, and the doctor went, no, you are. That's got nothing to do with it. And, um, yeah, and PTSD. And I've got all of these things that sort of, like, play into each other. And a lot of it comes from... that I got attacked a, a number of times as a teenager on public transport, and now I can't face going on it. And so, And the thing that becomes most terrifying, and that's why those two particular things, is that in spite of, in spite of what the media tells us, the most terrifying group of people out there are straight white men who are a bit pissed. They are... F- absolutely terrifying they're so frightening in, in public transport especially in an enclosed environment like that um trains buses anything like that i just yeah it, i find it difficult the thing that makes me happy is when people realize that we you know this is our only go at this and there's no point in being an arsehole so just try and be nice and try and be nice to other people because that just makes the world a better place all around that's all i've ever wanted so i must say i have some of my best conversations on trains that's very good. I, 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 as you know, I love talking to people on trains. If you wear headphones, they won't do it. No, no, That's no, I love phone. talking to people on trains, actually. <laughs> they try and... St- I've had that in the street where they come up... Because I've, I've got some of those nice noise reduction headphones and they come up and tap me on the shoulder to try and, like, get me to talk to them. It's people like that. him who like talking to strangers. Yeah, yeah, that's no, me. That's me. <laughs> that is probably me, actually. That's not, I, if it was you, that would have made me happier. Because, like, this is... And the, the way that everything's going at the moment, like, genuinely, I'm so glad that this podcast exists because it is terrifying out there. My partner, um, she's a uh, type 1 diabetic, so we're currently stockpiling insulin in case of a no deal because none of the stuff she needs to stay alive for more than 24 hours is, is made in this it's country. UK, Girlfriend, yeah. Yeah, in, case anyone hadn't seen I mean, me. somebody tweeted um, somebody tweeted the other day Brexit's gone from it's going to be great to don't worry there'll be adequate food yeah exactly. uh, 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 which I thought was, which I thought was quite apt yeah. really. adequate is the traditional British cuisine isn't it that's spam that's and, how and we've always May was saying you know people should be reassured and comforted that we're going to stockpile spam I not, mean uh, uh, you know, it's alright first not, not really because like Two years ago, David Davis went, oh, it'd be the, easiest, be the easiest thing we've ever done. be absolutely fine. Two years later, looks like we might have a no deal. Uh, about six months ago, don't worry, there'll be no Mad Max-style Brexit. 
we know that that is definitely coming next. I'm like, I'm ready to start m- messing about with my car and adding big wheels and spikes to it and everything. I don't think either Ed or I would fare very well post-apocalypse. I think not very badly. It's yeah. all right. Come and join my gang. I'll be fine. I'll take care of the. I mean, I had trouble changing a tire the other day, so I think, I think sort of, yeah, it's not going to be a good no. situation. I just stood around watching you ring yeah, the RAC. Yeah, it was a bad scene. Yeah. It was a uh, bad scene. Bethany, can I very quickly ask you about your show in Edinburgh? Yes, I'm doing a show uh, for the whole of the Edinburgh Fringe run. It's called Unwinnable, and it's on uh, stand two at ten to four every afternoon for for the whole of August. Um, is it a yeah. story? Is it stand up? Yeah, it's a stand up. Well, it's it's a stand up story. It's right. a story of me discovering that I'm on the autism spectrum and how obvious that should have been to everybody beforehand. Um, and also about you know discovering how these things have sort of affected my life and and being stuck in this house with me and my. Well, I say stuck in this house. That's just the um, that's just the agoraphobia talking. Just put the pair of us in this house winding each other up. It's great. It's a really funny story. I've not sold it particularly. Well. Uh, <laughs> It's the greatest comedy show of this or any generation. Put it that <laughs> way. Like, like, I've, I've seen it, and it's totally to my taste. So, you know. <laughs> I'm Bethany, a very good glad, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> uh, so, thanks to... Me? Yes, you were very good, Ed. Yeah, yeah thank yeah, you. Yeah, thank were. you to you. Thank you, yeah. yeah. Uh, thanks to Hilary Cotton. Yeah, thanks to Hilary Cotton. The book she was is brilliant. called Radical Hillary Hell. Cotton. Yeah, yeah. And to the wonderful Bethany Black. Yep. So, Emma Caution produced our podcast with backup and research from Alex Feist, Bryce and Lindsay Todd. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made our idents. Ed Seed wrote the music. And the Emily artwork Power. was designed by... Emily Power. Emily Power. Now, we should say to people who haven't listened before, please download us from any of the good podcast apps or any of the bad podcast uh, apps. Rate us on iTunes, iTunes because providing you're going to give us a good rating. I, I, because you've got to give us a five, because I'm quite obsessed with the iTunes chart. Oh, my God, I'm getting rained on. Uh, Ed, will, Ed will ring me at three in the morning saying, we've dropped down to number seven this week. <laughs> the iTunes chart, I could really go on for hours about the iTunes chart. We're but, out of time. Yeah, thank you. But basically... <laughs> But basically, we need a judge-led inquiry into the iTunes chart yeah. because I don't because Nick Clegg was temporarily above us in the iTunes chart. Where is he now, though? Where is he now? Is exactly. He now? Anyway, look, thank you. You've been an absolutely brilliant audience. Give yourself a big round of applause. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. Thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.